Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's Slap Law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 30th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast, a top 10 legal podcast. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California Boutique Law Firm of Morris & Stone. Boutique because we have a specialized practice area and because we sell velvet paintings of Jesus smoking pot. It's a high-profit venture. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Fun, fun, fun in the California sun at Morris & Stone. Just in the past couple of weeks, we obtained a $3.9 million defamation verdict for one client, got another client out of a $7 million case on a motion for summary judgment, and we got almost all of our attorney fees following a successful anti-slap motion, even though the motion did not dispose of every cause of action. And this last case is the one we're going to examine today, both as to the anti-slap motion and the following motion for attorney fees. This particular anti-slap motion presented some really interesting issues. Here are the pretty simple facts. To protect the innocent, let's change the facts slightly. Let's make the plaintiff an accountant. Two different people go to this accountant and have bad experiences. We'll call them Lucy and Ethel. They both, months apart, publish Yelp reviews about the accountant. The plaintiff accountant sues them both in the same action, claiming the reviews are false and defamatory. I represent Ethel. Probably before your time, but back in the day, gas stations sold gas with an additive called Ethel that helped prevent engine knock. So I'd pull up to the pump, and the attendant would ask, Do you want Ethel? And I'd answer, If she's working. Ah, that never got old. Anyway... My client Ethel published a bad review about the accountant, saying he was a crook. In the accountant's complaint, he sued my client for two different acts. He sued her for calling him a crook in the Yelp review, and he also sued her for talking to his attorney. Yes, you heard that right. Ethel had called the accountant's attorney to explain that truth is a defense and that her client really was a crook. Plaintiff and his counsel added that conversation to the complaint saying that was a separate and distinct defamatory statement. Houston, we have a problem. Clearly, the statements to plaintiff's attorney were protected by the litigation privilege. Any communication related to the litigation is privileged. Ethel's call to the attorney was really just a settlement discussion. But even the Yelp review was protected. Ethel's review was about a business, so that satisfies the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. Reviews of businesses are deemed to be matters of public interest. Thus, the motion came down to the second prong. Could plaintiff prove that he was more likely than not to prevail on his defamation claim based on being called a crook? More precisely, is the word crook a term that can be shown to be verifiably false, or is it just hyperbolic opinion? A number of cases have examined that precise issue and have all concluded that the word crook is just too ambiguous to be a verifiably false statement. As Fletcher v. San Jose Mercury News held, any broad, unfocused, and wholly subjective comment cannot be defamatory. In that case, the plaintiff had referred to the defendant as a crooked politician. The court held that statement could not form the basis of a defamation action. Another case called Lauterbach v. ABC came to the same conclusion about the use of the word crook. As is always the case, such a word can be the basis for defamation if it is based on a false statement. So if I say Joe is a crook, 
that is not defamation. It's just too ill-defined. But if I say Joe is a crook because he steals money from orphans and widows, then I've got myself a problem. In Ethel's case, she had simply said that she would not use plaintiff's accounting services because he is a crook. Do you see why that statement won't support a defamation claim? What does that even mean? Is he a crook because he charges too much? Is he a crook because he doesn't perform the work in the time promised? Is he a crook because he helps people minimize their taxes? We can't know. So here's how the analysis plays out. With an anti-slap motion, the declaration of the plaintiff is given great weight. If I falsely state that plaintiff robbed a bank, he would provide a declaration that just says, I didn't rob a bank. That would be enough to defeat the anti-slap motion. Even if I provided declarations from the police stating that he did indeed rob a bank, that would not overcome the plaintiff's declaration stating that he did not rob a bank. As with a motion for summary judgment, the court cannot weigh the evidence. But let's apply the same reasoning to the use of the word crook. Plaintiff files his declaration stating he is not a crook. But by what measure? For the reasons stated, we don't know what was meant by the use of the word crook. So how can plaintiff's declaration refute that point? So given everything I just told you, I must have won the anti-slap motion, correct? Well, I did prevail on the motion, but it was not a complete victory. I brought the motion on behalf of Ethel, and the other defense counsel brought the motion on behalf of Lucy. He had the easier time because his client's review did not use the word crook. So just as with my client, the review fell under the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, but he did not have to deal with the whole crook thing. He prevailed on his motion. His client is out of the action. Sing hallelujah. For my part, despite citing to cases that specifically held that calling someone a crook without more is not defamatory, the judge felt otherwise. She would not strike the crook allegation. Thankfully, though, I had presented the anti-slap motion in the proper form for a motion to strike, setting forth the individual paragraphs I wanted stricken, including the allegation about how my client had spoken to plaintiff's counsel, before I was involved, of course, and the crook allegation. There were six causes of action, and all six of them incorporated those two allegations. Now, let me do a quick sidebar here. The way plaintiff's counsel had drafted the complaint really got her into trouble. When drafting a complaint, don't just routinely incorporate prior allegations into every cause of action. Think about what you're doing. Especially in a complaint based in defamation, if you incorporate an allegation of protected speech into every claim, you make every claim vulnerable to an anti-slap motion. In this case, for example, plaintiff's counsel argued that her allegation about how my client had spoken to her was just being offered as background. Her claim was that she was just offering the conversation as further proof of the defamation. According to her, Ethel had lied in the review, and since she had told the same alleged lie to counsel, she was probably out there telling the world the same thing. She argued vigorously that she was not suing for the conversation with defendant, only for the review, but that argument did not carry the day. I explained that the pleadings must be taken as alleged. She alleged that there was a conversation between her and Ethel, incorporated that allegation into all the claims, and concluded each claim by alleging that the aforesaid conduct had damaged her client. She can't later argue, well, yeah, but what I meant to say was. So, back to the court's ruling on my anti-slap motion. The court struck the allegation about the conversation, but left the crook allegation. Although not a total victory, it was still a great result. We won't have to deal with that issue at trial, and I won't have to worry that the trial judge will fail to understand that the conversation between a client and opposing counsel is absolutely privileged under the litigation privilege. As to the crook allegation, my conversation with the judge went something like this. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. 
I've already filed the notice of appeal. But here's where things get fun. Opposing counsel always asks for sanctions. She argued that my anti-slap motion was so frivolous that the court should award sanctions. I won the motion, so the sanctions were never in play. But remember opposing counsel's position as they discuss the attorney fees. Now comes the time for my motion for attorney fees. There are three ways to analyze the award of attorney fees following an anti-slap motion that was only partially successful. If the ruling was a victory in name only, then the court can deny attorney fees altogether. So single-engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying altogether. It's, it's an, an entirely, entirely different, different kind, kind of flying. flying. For example, in one reported case, the anti-slap motion managed to get rid of a single cause of action for conspiracy. The court later denied the motion for attorney fees, stating that counsel had accomplished nothing since the underlying claims, which would involve the same evidence, still remained. Next, the court can apportion the attorney fees based on the number of claims successfully removed. In our case, there were six claims. In addition to getting that one allegation stricken, the court struck two causes of action. To keep the math simple, let's say my attorney fees totaled $30,000. $30,000 divided by the six claims equals $5,000 per claim. The court could have reduced my $30,000 fee request to $10,000 based on apportionment. But the court can also find that the issues were so intertwined that it would not be fair to apportion the fees in that manner. That is the argument I made. Since the allegation that I had managed to get stricken was incorporated into all six claims, I had to argue why it needed to be stricken within the context of all six claims. I urged the court not to apportion the fees. For her part, opposing counsel predictably argued that I should be sanctioned. Remember, she argued that my anti-slap motion was so frivolous that I should be sanctioned, and now she was arguing that my motion for attorney fees was also frivolous to the point that I should be sanctioned. And here is how she came to that conclusion. As they always do, opposing counsel first argued that the anti-slap motion was without merit, but when it comes time for the attorney fees, they argued that the motion was so obvious that it should have taken no time at all to prepare. Added to that, she claimed that my victory fell into the first category. She claimed that it was so obvious that my motion had not accomplished anything that a sultan of slap like me should have known better than to even ask for attorney fees. Then she threw in that my fee request was so excessive that alone warranted sanctions. On this last point, the argument was pretty hysterical. The attorney who prepared the opposition to my motion for attorney fees was fresh out of law school. This motion for attorney fees took more time than most of my attorney fees take because I had to argue against apportionment. So let's say I spent 10 hours on the motion. The fresh out of law school attorney argued that he had spent just 8 hours preparing the opposition to my motion. Based on that, he argued that I must be padding my bill because how could such an awesome, experienced attorney like me take 10 hours on a motion when it only took him 8 hours to oppose it? Do you see the very obvious flaw in that logic? In support of my motion, I have to set forth all the time entries for my invoices having to do with the anti-slap motion, and I have to support the time with the declaration, setting forth my experience and explaining why the particular anti-slap motion took the time it took. His task was to simply attack what I had said. By arguing that it took him the same approximate time to do an opposition as it did for me to do the motion, he'd only provided further proof that my time had been reasonable. And then there was one final issue with the original anti-slap motion. As I said, the court struck the allegation I went after and struck two of the six causes of action. But the stated reason for striking those two causes of action was that they don't exist. 
For example, plaintiff's counsel had alleged a cause of action for negligent infliction of emotional distress. But if you attended law school in California, you know that the claim for negligent infliction of emotional distress does not really exist except in the narrowest of circumstances. So even though my anti-slap motion succeeded in striking two causes of action, plaintiff's counsel argued that my motion really wasn't responsible for disposing of those two causes of action. Rather, according to plaintiff's counsel, the court had just seen the two causes of action just out of the blue looked and found those two causes of action, and it's stricken them on its own motion, like correcting a Scrivener's error. I argued that whatever the judge's reasoning had been, the fact remained that it was my anti-slap motion that had caused the two causes of action to be stricken. Under the theory of plaintiff's counsel, I could have brought a standard motion to strike those two causes of action. Perhaps, but I brought a special motion to strike instead. So that brings us to oral argument and the ruling. Stick around for the after show, and I'll tell you about the amusing video appearance by opposing counsel. So, as the moving party, I went first and summarized my arguments, emphasizing why the fees should not be apportioned. Opposing counsel, the fresh-out-of-law school attorney, went next and employed a very strange approach. Basically, he stated that there was no need to attack the reasonableness of my fees because it was so clear that I was not entitled to any fees since the victory was entirely illusory. Surely the court could see that the anti-slap motion had not been the cause of the two actions being stricken. After I argued some more, the court ruled that it was not going to apportion the fees. The judge agreed that the issues had been so intertwined that it was not appropriate to break down the fees by cause of action. Most entertaining was the way the judge responded to opposing counsel's argument that the two causes of action were not stricken as a result of my anti-slap motion. The judge basically responded, fool, of course they were stricken pursuant to the anti-slap motion. There is no dispute that the statements all fell under the anti-slap statute, so the first prong was met. This is still the judge talking. Then, under the second prong, I analyzed whether you were more likely than not to prevail on each claim. I concluded that you could not prevail under those two causes of action because those two causes of action do not exist. So yes, the anti-slap motion was the cause of those two causes of action being stricken. And don't call me Shirley. So, great results for Morrison Stone. As to the attorney representing the other defendant, not so much. He successfully extracted his client from the action, although that is on appeal, but unfortunately he was not awarded any attorney fees. He was seeking about 30000 in fees, as I recall, but he did not bring a motion. Instead, he just listed the attorney fees on his memorandum of costs. He was apparently unaware that I was the prodigy of fees and told me he had found authority to proceed in that manner. Plaintiff's counsel brought a motion to tax costs, arguing that the attorney fees had to be stricken from the memo of costs. The court agreed and struck the request for fees. The motion for attorney fees has to be filed within 60 days of the notice of ruling on the anti-slap motion. We are way past the 60 days, so I don't see any way for the other defense counsel to cure the failure to bring a timely motion. That was a $30,000 mistake by the other defense attorney. I mentioned earlier that we also won a motion for summary judgment this week, and this is another example of how you have to be familiar with procedural rules. I started my practice at a firm where pretty much all I did was summary judgment motions having to do with ERISA preemption. So I've probably done some 400 summary judgment motions in all my years of practice. But despite all that experience, every time I sit down to do a motion for summary judgment, I pull out the Rudder Group Guide, Civil Procedure Before Trial, and I use the section on summary judgment motions as a checklist while I prepare the motion. I've seen far too many attorneys lose their motions because they blow some procedural aspect, most often having to do with the separate statement. There's a very specific way you have to identify the issues if you are also doing a motion for summary adjudication. 
So with this latest motion for summary judgment, I represented one defendant and another attorney represented the other defendant. The issues as to the two defendants were very similar. So when I filed and served my motion for summary judgment, the other attorney apparently thought that was a good idea and did the same. He even scheduled his hearing for the same day. Rather than to draft a declaration from his client, he decided instead to use the declaration I had prepared as to my client. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is to use a declaration that the opposition has used at some point in the action. I get tremendous satisfaction using the opposition's declaration against them. A declaration is a declaration. You can reuse them and slap them onto any motion where appropriate. But he made a fatal error. He prepared his own declaration to discuss procedural matters and such, and he attached my client's declaration to his declaration. You can't do that. The same declaration you could have filed to support the motion, if you attach it to another declaration, then it needs to be authenticated. Think about it. I can't just offer something I found on the internet to prove the truth of the matter asserted simply by attaching it to my declaration. It would clearly be hearsay. I could attest that I found it on the internet. I suppose I could even attest that the author is a really smart person, but it's still hearsay. The moment he moved that declaration from the back of the motion and instead attached it to his declaration, he made it a hearsay exhibit. Now, some judges might not have cared, but this judge did. He denied the motion, stating that counsel had not offered any evidence to show that the facts were undisputed. This is an example of one of the hardest rules for attorneys to follow. Put your time in on the front end of the case. Attorneys draft a complaint without researching the causes of action and then spend hours and hours defending and amending that original complaint because they didn't draft it properly. They didn't allege it properly. With my anti-slap motion, opposing counsel had failed to research the causes of action and alleged two claims that do not exist, leaving me an opening for a successful anti-slap motion. With the motion for summary judgment, the attorney attached the declaration to his declaration without considering the implications of proceeding in that manner. I think today's lesson is simply look before you leap. In this instance, look is defined as do your research. Put the time in on the front end. The complaint is the big one, but with each step along the way, treat it as a new start and make sure you're not making more work for yourself. Every time you find yourself opposing a demur, that's probably a time you didn't spend enough time drafting the complaint or answer. It's not to say you necessarily did anything wrong, but a little more time on research might have eliminated the basis for the demur. Have a great week and try not to slap anyone. Just a quick war story about the hearing on the anti-slap motion. Both sides appeared by video. As I mentioned, it was the fresh out of law school attorney who appeared to argue the motion. I'm assuming that the more senior attorney was allowing him to argue the motion in order to gain experience. Remember, their position was that my motion was so frivolous that I should be sanctioned, so they probably thought this would be a good one for training. Opposing counsel's camera was mounted way too far from him, so he only took up a small part of the frame and you could see the entire office around him. It just it wasn't a good look. Now, I really have to be careful how I say this, but the story requires me to paint the picture. So here's the fresh attorney, small on the screen, arguing against my motion for attorney fees. And the more senior counsel, who I've never met, apparently decided he needed some help during oral argument. So she moves slowly onto the screen and is very pregnant. I add that fact only because it was slowing her down a bit. 
And right in the middle of Fresh Attorney's argument, she is talking to him and telling him points he needs to make during his argument. It's almost as though she did not know we were in front of the judge and thought this was some sort of practice run. So the judge jumps in and states that only one attorney is permitted to argue the motion. So the senior attorney slowly backs out of the scene. Then I make my argument, and the court gives Fresh Attorney another opportunity to respond. Well, the senior attorney could not help herself, so she slowly moves back into view and is again telling Fresh Attorney what to say. The judge cuts them off and says she has heard enough on the topic of whether I should receive any fees. As you'll recall, Fresh Attorney had basically stated that he was not even going to bother to argue the amount of the fees, so the judge said that now that it is clear that she was going to award my fees, did plaintiff's counsel want to address the amount of the fees? And she said, do you want to argue the point or do you want that other attorney to argue? The poor guy, he was obviously upset that she had twice stepped in, even after the judge had told her not to. All he could say was, I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Until next time, thanks for listening.